This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— with new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, in France in 1940, the armies of Nazi Germany annihilate the French military and capture Paris the crown jewel of Europe, in a matter of a few weeks. As Adolf Hitler tightens his grip on the City of Lights, the shocked Allies regroup and begin planning for a daring counterattack into Europe. The players holding the fate of Paris in their hands are some of the biggest historical figures of the era. Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, General George S. Patton, and the exiled French General Charles de Gaulle. From the fall of Paris in 1940, to the race for Paris in 1944, this enthralling drama unfolds through their decisions, for better and worse. Taking Paris is history told at a breathtaking pace, a sprawling yet intimate saga of heroism, desire, and personal sacrifice for all that is right. In his new book, Taking Paris, the Epic Battle for the City of Lights, Martin Dugard tells the riveting story of the people who set that beautiful city free. Vigorously researched, Martin Dugard's historical narrative takes readers behind the scenes in an epic page-turning account of the battle for the heart and soul of Paris in one of the 20th century's darkest moments. I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Martin Dugard, 
He has co-authored the best-selling Killing series with Bill O'Reilly, and he's here to talk about his new book. Martin, thank you for joining me. Let me start by saying that we just had the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Paris on August 25th of this year. And it occurred to me that you aligned your book, Taking Paris, The Epic Battle for the City of Lights, release on September 7th to coincide with the 75th anniversary. Tell me, what inspired you to write the book? First of all, Mr. Speaker, thanks for having me on. I had originally wanted to do a a book about Anzio and about the Italian landings. And as I began to research it, I realized that to tell that story, I had to tell the bigger picture to give a context about how we got to the point that we were attacking Anzio Beach and trying to march on Rome. And then I completely pivoted once I began doing the research. And I was just fascinated with what happened to Paris. It was the Nazis swept into France on May 10th, 1940. The French people didn't think that their nation would fall. The people of Paris didn't even bother to leave. It was a holiday weekend. They went about their business. They went to their country homes. Within a month, millions and millions of of Parisians were fleeing the city in panic ahead of the Nazis. And then they descended into four years of Nazi occupation. It's kind of funny. We landed on September 7th, but originally we were supposed to be on November 2nd, which would have been the same day that the new killing book would have come out. So we kind of had to backtrack a little bit, and then the killing book got pushed as well. I was going to say, you've had a great partnership with Bill O'Reilly. How did that come about? You know, it happened during, gosh, was it 2008 or 2009? You know, just when the economy had collapsed, the book industry was just sinking fast. And as somebody who writes history for a living, history books weren't selling. People didn't want to read history books. They wanted to read celebrity tell-alls and cookbooks and I pitched a dozen ideas that just didn't go anywhere. And finally, I was up in the mountains with my family and my agent called and he was Bill's agent at the time. And he said, you know, can you get to New York by Wednesday? I've got a client who wants to write a book. And he didn't tell me who it was. So I arrived at the restaurant in Manhattan. And of course, it's Bill. And we've worked together ever since. I mean, it's been a remarkably successful series. You're up to, what, number 11? We just finished 11 and we're in talks about 12. It's an ongoing concern. <laughs> it's a- yeah, you're virtually a small industry by yourselves. And I was looking at, I mean, you wrote Inline Skating Made Easy, <laughs> a manual for beginners with tips for experience. I mean, the idea that the guy who wrote that then jumped to writing with Bill O'Reilly, then you went on to write Surviving the Toughest Race on Earth about covering the raid Yalwa which is an adventure race through the wilderness in Madagascar. I mean, did you actually go on the race? I did the race. I covered it for a few years. You know, my story is I got out of college and I got a corporate job. I just realized within weeks that it was just not going to make me happy. And I just couldn't imagine doing that, working for a corporation, working in a cubicle. You know, I was 25. I didn't want to do that the rest of my life. So I just decided to take a flyer on maybe doing some writing on the side. And I started working for free just for little tiny triathlon and marathon magazines. And I worked my way up to Esquire and GQ and Sports Illustrated, but just still as a freelance, still having my corporate job. And then one year I went to cover the Raid Galois in Madagascar. And when I got back, my boss fired me. And it was the best day of my life. You know, I went home and told my wife had gotten fired. And we decided that we we're going to take a chance on this whole writing thing. And So I took anything that came my way, including inline skating made easy, which I wrote 
in three weeks for just a few thousand dollars. It was just, you know, not much, but it kept me going. Did it sell? <laughs> I have no idea. You know, the saving grace of that book is that I had to provide all the photographs. So yeah. my models for all of the action were my wife and my two sons, who were small children at the time. So it's kind of poignant. Clist and I visited Madagascar a couple of years ago. It's a fascinating, fascinating island. Tell us about the race. I'm intrigued. I don't think I knew about it. Oh, back in the 90s, you know, the French are the French. They like to do the crazy stuff. And so they contrived this team event. You had five people on every team. One had to be a woman. And the aim was to travel from across a different countryside every year, a different wilderness. So, you know, Madagascar, Borneo, Patagonia. You had to get from point A to point B, but there was prescribed disciplines ahead of time. It might be kayaking, might be rappelling, it might be skydiving in Madagascar, a lot, a lot of long hikes, maybe some horseback riding. And it usually took about two weeks. And when I did it in Madagascar, when I covered it that year, it was the first time I'd ever actually left the United States. So that was my baptism to world travel. And, you know, the temperatures were so high, you know, the mid-120s that a lot of journalists fudged the numbers because people didn't believe them. I should say they were afraid that their the bureaus back in Paris wouldn't believe them. And there were crocodiles in all the rivers, and it was epic. It was sweeping, and I, I fell in love with the idea of being a journalist and living a life like that. So that's why I was so happy when I got fired when I came back, because that was the life I decided I wanted to lead. Yeah, we had an experience on an island that was filled with lemurs. And we have a picture of me with, I'm wearing a hat, this sort of an adventurer's hat, and I have three lemurs sitting on my head and one on each shoulder. They're eating bananas. We're feeding them stuff. And I found Madagascar to be just almost like magic. Now, you then go, though, and you spend nine years covering the Tour de France. Mm-hmm. So, which leads me, first of all, to note that you obviously are Francophile because you, you're in Madagascar with the French, and then you're in France with the French. It wasn't by design. I'm much more of an Anglophile, to be honest. But I kind of fell into the tour. You know, that was back in the Lance Armstrong days. And so I had enjoyed covering bike racing from the mid-80s when it was Greg LeMond who was winning the Tour de France. But I never actually got to go to the tour until the year that Lance first won in 1999. And then it just became a habit. It's a super intense way to cover an event because they change cities every single day. So you're always on the road. It's this epic 23-day road trip. But at the same time, you get to see places in France that regular tourists will never go to, just places like the Central Massif and, you know, these little towns in the Pyrenees and the Alps, you know, and it's hard to find a place to sleep a lot because there's so many tourists and journalists and riders covering the tour. So, I mean, I slept in cow pastures. I woke up one morning with a dairy cow with a bell around its neck standing over me. It was a great adventure. It was a great time to do it. And I think I wrung every last bit of adventure out of it before I just called it quits and decided to stay home for a while. You end up writing a book called Chasing Lance, the 2000 Tour de France and Lance Armstrong's Ride of a Lifetime. Did you have any notion at all of the drug problems he'd end up in? You know, it was the number one topic in the press room. There was always that question. But, you know, at the time, there was suspicion. The French certainly believed that they were just trying to find a way to pin it on him. But at the time, he was this heroic American figure. You had... Tons of people who would never go to the Tour de France were flying to France to watch Lance and to watch what he was doing. And he had never been busted for doping. So there was no reason to think that he really had done it. 
we thought it was all in his merit. And he was this big, charismatic, almost iconic figure that it was fun to cover. Even though there was doubt, you didn't want it to be a real thing. The one thing we said a lot was, if he is doping, it'll be one of the biggest letdowns in history. And it really was, it became a huge event. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. 
Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You then switched and you move into history and write farther than any man the rise and fall of Captain James Cook. I mean, Cook's a fascinating guy, but what got you to write about him? You know, in 1998, there was a huge sailing tragedy off the coast of Australia during the Sydney to Hobart sailing race. A cyclone struck the fleet, ships were lost, men died, and I got a publisher who called me and asked me to go down and write a book about it, but I had to write it pretty quick. And so I flew down to Sydney, and I was interviewing all the sailors who did it, and I didn't know much about Captain Cook at the time, but the one thing that all these sailors talked about, of course, being Australians, you know, Cook was the founder of their nation in a way. They all talked about what a great blue water sailor he was. I began looking into Cook and, you know, he had these three great voyages. He went places that nobody had ever been at that time. And he basically charted all of the Pacific. And I did it for two reasons. One, it was the chance to travel because he went everywhere. So I got to go a lot of cool places too. But also as a kid, I had a fascination with history and I had a history minor in college and my one beef with history was that it was told in a boring, academic, slow-paced manner. And with Cook, I was trying to write history in a very fast-paced action. You know, remember, I came from a sports writing background, so I wanted to write it kind of like a really great epic yarn. And that began the stylistic process that I used in my subsequent book, Into Africa, which is about Stanley Livingston. I used it in my book about Columbus but that was all in the past tense. But when I started writing with Bill and we began with Killing Lincoln, I really decided, like, what if we put this in the present tense? What if we have a real you are there thing with the readers and then try to pick it up, you know, do it like a page turner. And that process continues today into Taking Paris. I want people to read Taking Paris as if it is a James Patterson thriller. You know, it's got a ton of detail. It's got a ton of action and it moves. For your background, you start moving into history and you go to Africa with Stanley and Livingston. Then you join Christopher Columbus on crossing the Atlantic for the fourth time. And so you've really had a remarkably broad background before you turned to France. I did. The Killing Books, that was kind of the start of the cool stuff because after I got done with Columbus, which was the third kind of in my exploration trilogy, and I kind of stumbled into working with Bill, we were going to write Killing Lincoln as a one-off. It was just going to be this simple book. And for Bill, it was like a challenge because his publisher at the time didn't think that he could write history. They thought he could just do politics. So he switched to a new publisher. And when we did this, and Killing Lincoln was an immediate hit. And then we went to Killing Kennedy, and then it was Killing Jesus. And then all of a sudden, I realized, you know, Bill was unfettered by this idea that you had to do a certain chronology of history. He decided we kind of jumped around to different places in history, you know, the fall of Japan in World War II, the capture of the SS criminals, all the way up to the mafia. And it was, for me, great because as the guy who did most of the research, I learned that instead of just focusing on one period of time, that I could write from any period of time as long as you do the research and you do the deep dive and really pour yourself into the work. So you become a, I kind of call it like a master's degree. Each book is a master's degree in a certain period of history. And so by the time 
I had done all those books with Bill, and we thought at the time the Killing series was over, and I went into Taking Paris. A, it was weird not to have my regular three times, four times a week discussion with Bill about the stuff I was working on, and B, it was weird to take all the lessons I learned about storytelling over a long career, but especially during the, the Killing series, and to take them into a book of my own, and that was super fun. I mean, you're now a very mature writer, and you've done a wide range of things. When you look at what you've learned about Paris, what really leaps to your mind as sort of the big insight or the big moment or the big lesson? A few things. If you take it with modern-day history, you know, the fall of Kabul, what happened in Afghanistan is very much like what happened in Paris. You have these invaders who have plenty of resources. They move quickly. The people in the capital city think that people are going to fight for their country. They don't believe that their own army is going to fall apart. These invaders are rapacious, and they sweep across the country, and they surround the city and take the city. These people who hadn't wanted to get out just a month earlier are crazed with this desire to get out. In just that cautionary tale, you know, if there is a lesson there that in warfare, things can happen very, very quickly. And I think there's a sense of disbelief for people when they are under attack. You know, I've clearly never been in that kind of position, but it would be one of those things where people kind of suspend pragmatism and they cling to this hope that their nation or their city is not going to fall and history shows it does. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick 
and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the case of Paris... What was the reality of German occupation like? I mean, you know, we look back on it, I think it's hard for Americans to fully appreciate what it would be like to suddenly have a foreign government occupying you and a foreign Gestapo or secret police rounding up people. And I think combined with economic hardship, it made life in Paris very difficult. From your research, what was the effect on the people of Paris? Well, the Germans first came in, the people of Paris fled in this mass exodus. The government fled. They declared Paris an open city because they didn't want to see it get destroyed. So that would be like the people of New York, for instance, you know, caring so much about the beauty of New York that they would rather it be occupied than leveled by an army. So the Germans just came in. But what was different was, for instance, when they attacked Poland in 1939, when they went into Warsaw, They killed everything in sight. They leveled the city. They used their big guns to knock down cathedrals and major buildings. And when they came into Paris, their whole attitude was, no, this is a very special place. We cherish it. We admire it. You know, Hitler himself came to see the works of art in Paris just right after it fell. It was just one of those places. Their idea originally was that Paris would be this refuge during the war. German soldiers on leave from the front would all get a chance to go to Paris and enjoy its beauties, which they did. And the people of Paris were going to be treated with courtesy and respect. But again, you know, anytime you have an occupying force, that changes. And so what began is an attempt to treat Paris as this respite from the war for the German army became this thing where the people began to slowly rise up and commit acts of sabotage and subterfuge. And so the Germans began kind of tightening things up. And then later in the war, when food became scarce and heating oil became scarce and Cars used briquettes, literally like a barbecue on their car to power their engines because there was no gasoline. Everybody in the city was basically starving by the end of the war, and the Germans became very, very strict. In that context, you do end up with a genuine resistance movement, both domestic from Frenchmen, but also with particular help from the British. 
And how does that play out? Did it really have any impact or was it just an annoyance? It's interesting because revisionist history would have you believe that the resistance played a very small role. And clearly that they could not accomplish what a big conquering force like the American army coming ashore on D-Day. But at the same time, the first resistance within Paris rose up organically. You had just regular people, people with no military training, people with no background whatsoever in sedition, all of a sudden finding ways to subvert the Nazi war effort, whether that was getting word back to England about troop movements or helping down allied flyers, smuggling documents, taking pictures and making sure they got back to England. And that kind of grew. It started with just a handful of people and became a legitimate thing. And they were all acting independently. And they had to be very careful because if they were found out, they could be shot, they could be sent off to a death camp. And at the same time, Britain launched their own SOE, the Special Operations Executive, which was basically the start of special forces in World War II. And we see U.S. Special Forces later come into play on the, the Anzio Beach later on the war, but it was literally Hitler's order was to set Europe ablaze. That was what he told the, the people that would form this SOE. So you have the British, they link up with the French, and then de Gaulle comes in later and sends in Jean Moulin, who's his representative, and he basically gets all these disparate groups of resistance throughout the country to work as one effective force. So when the Allies finally did come in, they were very, very good at blowing up bridges, stopping trains, doing all these things that the Nazis were expecting an army to do, but not knowing that the local citizens were capable of accomplishing these tasks. As the Americans and the Free French and the British began to approach Paris, I mean, Hitler had in mind leveling the city. Yeah, he wanted to set ablaze. And was it your sense that the German generals never were prepared to do that? They were prepared. I mean, they wired all of the bridges across the Seine. I think there are 23. All of them were wired to explode. All of the munitions, places they stored electricity, the places where gasoline was kept, all those places were set to be destroyed. And for whatever reason, von Scholtitz, the German general who was in charge of the city at the very end, chose not to do that. He was a guy who had overseen the fall of Rotterdam, where the city was just bombed to nothing. That was in the start of the war, and he was in Sebastopol fighting the Russians, which was also destroyed. So when he came to Paris, after meeting directly with Hitler, and Hitler's order to him was to you know, hold the city at all costs, but if he had to get out to destroy it, there was every reason to think von Scholtes was going to follow those orders. And for him to instead give himself up and surrender without carrying out those orders is kind of remarkable. It's really went against type. When I visit Paris, I often think of what an extraordinary thing it was. And Clifton and I spent three and a half years in Rome while she was ambassador to the Vatican. And Rome also had become an open city. And you compare that to the kind of damage, say, in Cologne, or for that matter, in London or Berlin. Having Paris and Rome still, the cities they were historically, is just really almost a miracle. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine, you know, take Rome, imagine the Colosseum getting leveled by a bombing or the Parthenon. And then in Paris, if you walk the streets, you have the Louvre, you have all these great architectural marvels. And to think of them as being destroyed, it's funny that you mentioned Cologne because I went to Cologne as part of my research just as a sidebar because I'd never been. 
And one of the reasons I went was because of the epic tank battles that took place in the street. And you can see where all that took place, but you can also see what it was like for that whole city to have just been destroyed, with the exception of the cathedral there. And that happened in so many different cities. In London, my favorite restaurant is kind of underground, but it used to be more street level. But after the Blitz, they used the rubble to, basically, if you look at what used to be a window at street level, now it's covered with rubble from the Blitz because it just got bombed out. It's pretty cool. Well, that's kind of amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Fascinating. So do you have a new project coming up? I do. I'm doing a sequel to Taking Paris. So I'm trying to kind of spawn my own series. Instead of the Killing series, it'll be the Taking series. And we'll see where that goes. I'm enjoying it for the guy who was in the corporate world you know, working for the man. All of a sudden, I've been a writer now for 30 years, and I'm really liking the fact that I'm working on some projects that feel... Like you said, I'm a mature writer right now. I'm not that guy trying to crank out 1,500 words for a, a magazine piece. And it's fun to just play with the words, fuss over sentences, really do the deep dive into the research. And I'm looking forward to this next book. And if Bill calls any time for another book, obviously I'm there for him. Well, it's interesting. I've always thought that one of the virtues of being a writer is, for example, you decide to do Paris. Well, gee, you got to go spend some time in Paris. <laughs> Like when I did my Africa book, I'd never seen a lion in the wild. So I literally pitched the Africa book just because I wanted to go see a lion. That was the whole thing. No, it makes a lot of sense. I really admire the way you've done this. Let me ask you, because you have been so successful and you are so professional, if a young person came to you and said, should they become a writer, what advice would you give them? I would tell them, A, if they want to be a writer, I would let them know that it's one of the rare professions where you choose your fate. It depends on how much you want to work, how much you want to dedicate to it. And you can't depend upon the muse. You have to basically get your butt in the seat every single day. My office is in my garage. It's 30 feet from my kitchen. I get a cup of coffee every morning. I come out here. And six days a week, I sit here whether I feel like writing or not. It's a job. It's a very blue-collar profession. And people think of it as something artistic or you have to wait for the muse. It's a job. You have to sit down. And yes, I enjoy my job. I love it. But at the same time, I realize that it demands my full commitment if I'm going to succeed. So my second question is parallel. So somebody in their 40s or 50s comes to you and says, I'm really tired of my corporate job and I'd really like to break loose. Is it plausible that I could become a writer? Yeah. I always think of Grandma Moses. Remember her? Grandma Moses was 77 when she started to paint. I mean, that's crazy. I figure that if somebody wants to put the time in, like when I was working in the corporate world, if I was going to write, I had to get up at four o'clock in the morning and write for two or three hours before I went to work. You have to be willing to do something like that because most people don't have the financial resources to just abruptly quit their job and start writing books. You've got to know that there's going to be some hardship. I have people that write to me all the time and say, I have a book idea, write a book with me. And it's a gutsy thing for them to do, and, and, and I admire how they're putting themselves out like that. But I always write back and say, it's your story. The only person who can tell it is you, and you have to be the one who sits down and writes a page a day. Because at the end of the year, if you write a page a day, you've got a book. So it's work. I always tell people, you have to remember that you have to spend as much time selling the book as you spend writing it. And, and a lot of people think, well, I'm, I'm going to write my book. And then it gets published, and then they stop and they turn to the next book, 
and they haven't spent any time communicating to a world that doesn't even know their book exists yet. Well, I have to admit, Mr. Speaker, that I'm one of those guys because that I've had the privilege and the luxury for the last 12 years of working with Bill. Bill is a master promoter, you know, and I'm the sidekick. So he had a show which was a bully pulpit. He's still got this podcast, which does great business. So I'm actually contractually prohibited from doing any marketing for those books, which is great because all I have to do is go into my office in my introverted self and sit down and, and write books all day long. And with this book, gosh, I finished it back in February. It's been a long time. But this whole process of like, oh, yeah, I've got to really publicize this book. I've got to put myself out there. It's hard and is a very necessary part of this process because, as you know, this is a business. If you don't sell books, you don't get to write books. But I have to say, I'm not a very self-promotional person, but after 12 years away from not promoting my books, it feels like a lot of fun because I believe in this book. I'm really thrilled with the way it came out. I mean, it's a great way to meet people and talk to people. If you've written a book you really believe in, it's kind of fun to have a chance to talk about it. I know, and I'm enjoying it too. I love what Winston Churchill quote about, you know, writing a book is an adventure versus it is a mistress, blah, blah, blah. And finally, it is a monster that you throw to the public. And that's where I am with this book. I love it, but I want to throw it to the public and stand back and see whether they love it, see whether they hate it. I want to hear people's comments. It's fun. Well, that's great. And I think you've got a great new series, this whole idea of a taking series. Of, I'll be intrigued to see where you go next with it. Martin, I want to thank you for joining me today. Your new book will be out this Tuesday, September 7th. It's available for pre-order now. We're going to have a link to it, Taking Paris, The Epic Battle for the City of Lights, on our show page at newtsworld.com. And I wish you well in whatever you decide to do next. Well, thank you, sir. It's been quite an honor to talk to you. And it's also been a lot of fun. You're a great and you're a very generous host. I really appreciate that. Thank you to my guest, Martin Degard. You can get a link to Taking Paris, the epic battle for the City of Lights, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. 
We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleha Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.